I wonder how many would, would put up their hand that say older than 50. I would expect most would say, yes, I can, I can do it, I'm there. But under 50, I suspect that it's going to be a bit different story. Now, I say that to introduce this idea. For, for, for the older generation, there are a lot of assumptions. You know, familiarity breeds contempt sort of thing. It's, we, we take a lot of things for granted when we think we know what we know but often we don't know, at least not as well as we, we think we know. But then again, for a younger generation, maybe this will be news to you. Um, either way, I hope that you'll listen up. I mean, I, I was a little bit surprised in my outcome in, in preparing for this lesson and, and maybe there's a bit of a, a surprise in store for you. So that's as much suspense as I can, as I can offer as we move forward. Quoting from a, a scholar named Pennington, He makes the observation, it is no accident that the Lord's Prayer appears in the centre of the centre of the centre of the Sermon on the Mount. That's catchy language, isn't it? Of the centre of the centre of the centre. Cyprian, a couple of of what uh, many would refer to as early church fathers, Cyprian called it a compendium of heavenly doctrine. A compendium, a, a summary statement of the message from God. Tertullian called it an abridgment of the entire gospel. Go figure. Those words, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. These guys are taking that all too familiar phrase and saying this is the heart, this is central. And, and maybe, you know, in the, in, in, when we were in a Christian era, let's say, as opposed to the current so-called post-Christian era, and even in our education system, the state's education system, where it was routine to be reciting uh, the National Anthem, where it was routine, I think, to be reciting the Lord's Prayer, that that is a reflection of the general cultures um, being influenced by Christianity. And so I think we could see with that bit of evidence how central the Lord's Prayer, or the Lord's Model Prayer, if you will, was to Christianity. That it would flow outside of the walls of the church, if you will, into a broader culture, a broader society in general, that in those days still had respect for and gave attention to Christianity. Here's here's my attempt to sort of emphasise this centre of the centre of the centre business. Um, Again, without the time to offer an extended sort of commentary, I just want to say in passing that in, in this modern times, where people are so ignorant of the Bible, um, they come to a unique literary genre like the Gospels and, and expect to, to find some sort of a, an equivalent to a modern um, biography, if you will. And so when it doesn't match up to our modern expectations of a modern biography, we dismiss it as a load of rubbish. Well, that's just a display of ignorance. But understand this. The Gospels, as is the case with much of the sacred literature of what we call the Bible, 
is very deliberately, intricately, artistically composed, put together. And so, just considering the Sermon on the Mount as an example, you've got on that outer circle there, you've got the prologue. Um, We often refer to it as the Beatitudes. And then, of course, the the, the bookend at the other end, uh, you've got that, um, uh, that, that narrative that Jesus gives at the conclusion of his sermon about um, the, the beware of false teachers, you'll know them by their fruit. And, of course, that classic image of you know, the person who hears the words of, of, of my sermon and does them will be likened unto the wise builder that builds upon the rock. We're all very familiar with that. They're, they're bookends, if you will, in, that, that sort of frame what lies in between the sermon, the sermon itself. And so in Matthew chapter 5 we begin with the observation which is really foundational, uh, accept your righteousness, exceed or go beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees, the teachers of the law. You'll not enter into the kingdom. You can't participate in the kingdom unless your idea and understanding and practice of righteousness goes way beyond what the Pharisees and the, and the teachers of the law are on about. And so he launches into this narrative about, we, we recognise um, uh, in, in chapter 5, talks about several um, uh, contrasts. Yeah, you've heard it said by those of old, do not murder. So that was the level, that was representative of the righteousness of the Pharisees in their interpretation and application of Torah. But I say unto you, don't be angry. Don't be angry. So Jesus, in contrasting the Pharisaic, the rabbinic, traditional interpretations of the law, highlights what the actual intent of the law, the true righteousness, what the heart of God is in the law. So don't worry about you know, stopping, stopping short of, of, of adultery and that's okay with God. Jesus says lust is the problem. Lust is the issue that we need to be driving at. And of course when we move even closer to Matthew chapter 6, you've got the, uh, what you might describe as the call to uh, ethical behaviour, Piety, an old-fashioned word, but it conveys the, the, the sense of what, um, what he's talking about. And then right in the heart, so you see the progressive moving in of the circles. We're moving to the bullseye. And right at the heart, the bullseye is the Lord's model prayer. And when Matthew put all of this teaching together in such a fashion, he is trying to communicate to us so that we cannot miss the point. This is the heart of the matter. This is of vital importance, the centrepiece of Jesus' teaching. So we can understand why the likes of Cyprian would have described it as the compendium of holy doctrine or heavenly doctrine. And Tertullian, the abridgment of the entire gospel, it is that important. The way Matthew constructs it communicates that, reinforces that, emphasises that to us and the likes of Cyprian and Tertullian and us today as the followers of Christ need to understand and and appreciate that as we approach an understanding. Now, I want to just highlight something in order to move on very quickly, really. Um, You'll often hear it said, and quite reasonably so, quite quite, um, um, Accurately, that the model prayer can be broken up into components, adoration, confession, thanksgiving and supplication. And that is true. 
That is absolutely true. And if you use that as a guide to your own uh, prayers, your own prayer life, you won't go wrong. That's fine. That's fine. But the model prayer is much, 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 much more than just that, than just a list of categories that might be appropriate to include in our prayers to God. It is that, but it is much more than just that. So the sermon is about righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Matthew 5.21 following focuses on several examples of righteous interpretation and application of Torah. Anger versus murder, for example, lust versus adultery, etc. And Matthew chapter 6 focuses on three examples of piety or spiritual disciplines or righteous actions. You've got alms giving, prayer in the middle and then fasting. And so our attention right now is to the context, the immediate context, that is what, what Jesus says immediately before offering the model prayer. Whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, code for the scribes and Pharisees, basically. Um, uh, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Just a summary statement here, observation. The true piety is measured in terms of motive. The question that we need to be challenged by in anything that we do, almsgiving, prayer, fasting or anything else that we might conceive of as rendering in service to God, religious service, we need to allow ourselves to be honestly and frankly challenged by the question, are my actions intended to serve God and glorify him or is it about me. The scariest thing about religion is that religion can be used as a device to serve the ego, to serve the self. Just like a person who would even pretend to believe in God or pretend to follow God, an irreligious person if you will. The difference is and the danger is that that covering, that veneer of religion can sometimes allow even ourselves to be fooled that it's any less self-centred than it is the person running around without consideration to God at, at all. It's precisely for this, in this way that we can end up with the kind of religion that seems to have been prevalent at least. I'd like to think there were exceptions to the rule. I'd like to think there were many exceptions to the rule, but, but generally it seems among the religious establishment of the Jews in Jesus' time, the first century time of the Incarnation, that, that they were so full of sham and hypocrisy. And yet, you remember one of Jesus' favourite ways of describing them? Blind fools. They were blind to their own hypocrisy. We're the people of God. We do all the right stuff. What's your problem? Well, motivation, the condition of the heart, could take something as simple and honourable as prayer and turn it into a show, 
turn it into a means by which I can be aggrandised. Just an observation about verses 7 and 8. When you pray, this is the King James Version, um, reflected in the New King James text and also in the New American Standard Bible. When you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before you ask him. The ESV translates this way, a preferable translation, I want to argue, preferable because of its clarity or lack of ambiguity. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And finally, this from the NIV, which I think, again, in this respect, is a good uh, rendering of the text. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Uh, The word babbling there reminds one of perhaps the incident where you've got Elijah and the... um, uh, the, the prophets of Baal, you remember, the showdown on Mount Carmel. And there are the prophets of Baal running around and, and sort of babbling and carrying on and yelling out to, to Baal and, and cutting themselves, etc., making a big show of it. Would have been quite impressive, I'm sure, in contrast to Elijah, who just simply and intelligibly calls upon God to act. It even stacks the, stacks the odds against God by having water poured on the altar so there could be no confusion about the nature and, and, and the, 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 the strength, if you will, of the miracle that Elijah was calling upon God to perform, that a drenched altar would burst into flames. That's, that's getting one's attention. Pretty difficult to dispute. It's that kind of contrast that, uh, that, that's being made here, uh, the, 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 the babbling, the empty phrases, the blah, 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 as opposed to simplicity of speaking with God. Now, two important points I want to make. Notice in the brown text there, verse 8, our Father already knows. Our Father already knows. So why pray? Why bother God? Why ask God? If he already knows. Well, I want to suggest it becomes clear, therefore, that the words of prayer don't change God per se. God wants us to pray to him. But it's not for God's benefit. It's for our benefit. Notice this next line. The words of prayer change or shape and form us. As we pray to God, we are the ones being changed, being shaped by the words and the thoughts that we're expressing to God. Now that relates to this point. An anti-liturgical bias, and, and, and in general sense you might almost call it like a Protestant versus Catholic kind of bias, Um, has led some to interpret vain repetitions, which is the language of the King James Version, 
as prohibiting the reciting of formulaic prayers, including the Lord's model prayer. Um, I don't know what your experience has been, but I've heard many times the observation made that to recite the Lord's model prayer as is common in liturgical traditions like the Roman Catholics and the the Orthodox, the High Church of England, etc., that that's vain repetition. We don't do that. I want to suggest to you we've missed the point. We've missed the point. Because as you'll notice, and my purpose for having those alternative readings, it's not talking about vain repetitions as in saying the same thing one week after another week after another week, or one day after another day after another day. That's not vain repetition. That's not what Jesus is, is, is criticising. He's criticising heaping up empty phrases. He's criticising babbling like the pagans. Think about the Psalms. Jesus himself, when, when he instituted the Lord's Supper in the context of the Passover, he demonstrates that he followed the, the Israelite practice of taking a set, set of psalms and dispersing or interspersing the recital of those psalms throughout the Passover meal. And they did this year after year after year. That's not vain repetition. Simply reciting the word of God is not vain repetition. Um, the Shema, faithful Hebrews to this day, recite the Shema. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your strength and your mind and your heart and your soul. That's a prayer that, let's say, conservative Israelites, even down to today, and I don't doubt that Jesus would have engaged in the same practice himself, in the morning and the evening, they would recite that prayer. That's not vain repetition. It's not vain repetition. The appeal is for simplicity rather than verbosity and show. Jesus said, and listen to this language, this then is how you should pray. In contrast to the babbling of the, of the pagans, in contrast to the heaping up of, of, of empty phrases, this then is how you ought to pray. Our Father, who is in heaven. Even clearer in the context in Luke 11, where Jesus responds to his disciples' request that he teach them to pray, Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. And he essentially goes on to repeat what we know of as the, the model prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you might be a bit challenged by what I'm saying but I want you to understand that the reciting of this prayer this formula if you will I hope within 10 minutes when we sort of walk through it and I look at the clock and I think the next 5 minutes when we walk through it the accelerated version um that, uh, that you'll have some essence of, of the profound importance of this formula, if you will. So, pray like this, says Jesus. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There it is. 
simple, succinct, profound. The prayer divides itself naturally into two halves. And, and you can tell by the, by the structure, the way it's structured. You know, your name, your kingdom, your will be done. The first half, if you will, of the prayer is addressing Father God. So God, others, otherness and holiness is, is respected. Our Father in heaven. Or inspired by God's transcendence, his otherness, his beyond usness, but also his imminence, our Father. The one who loves us, the one who is concerned for us. This is the picture that Jesus sought to convey for us of our Creator, our Heavenly Father. So the two are brought together in that context. God's kingdom, your kingdom come. Yeah, if we understand the nature of the kingdom, we can pray that today. When Jesus first offered the model prayer, at that point in time, the kingdom was yet to be established. The king, certainly, through the incarnation, had come into the midst of humanity. But there was a long road to go yet. The road of suffering that culminated in death on a cross. But then three days later, He's trumped with the victory of resurrection, victory over death. And then we're told by Luke, after some 40 days of presenting himself alive with many infallible proofs to the disciples, he leaves them their marching orders, what we refer to the Great Commission. And then he ascends, he returns to the heavenlies to take his rightful place, to reign on the throne of David at the right hand side of the Father. There's your kingdom. Your kingdom come. But here's the rub. It's a now but not yet kingdom. The kingdom is established, yes. Ever since the king took his rightful place on that throne. The kingdom has come, present tense. But it continues. It's not here fully. That kingdom, the broad sweep of the New Testament scriptures, that kingdom that is now is also yet to come, yet to be fully realised. An event that we look forward to when we associate with the parousia, the second coming of Christ. An event we associate with the resurrection, the bodily resurrection. An event that we associate with the ushering in of new heavens and new earth. That's the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the rule of God, fully realised. And that's what we yet hope for. We have the taste of the present, yes, but there's much, much more to come. So we can pray, your kingdom come. And how is that expressed? There's no question about defining what do we mean by the kingdom of God. Well, we mean the rule of God, the reign of God. And how do we recognise? Well, it's expressed through our submission to the king, through God's rule being honoured on earth as it is in heaven. That's what God's kingdom is about. That's what Jesus came, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
time to turn around. Time to become realigned with the will of the Father, the will of the Creator. But then the second half, you'll notice again the switch in the language, us, us, us. And notice it is us, it's communal, it's not individual. As, as good little modern Westerners with the whole emphasis upon individualism, we tend to sort of lose sight. This is community. Nothing is said in scripture apart from the idea of our being family, our being community. What affects one affects everybody. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Many have, I think, rightly pointed out that these two divisions of the prayer express simply, remember Jesus' summary of the law and the prophets, love God, citing the Shema, but also citing Leviticus, love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commands hinge the entire law, Torah and the prophets, what we would think of as the Old Testament scriptures. That's your summary of God's law, God's word. And here it is summarised in the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. And many have been quick to point out too, I think justifiably so, that it's reminiscent of the, the structure of the Ten Commandments where the first five commandments focus on God, the second five focus upon human relationships. It's very likely that that's all intended that we pick up those little hints to recognise just as the Ten Commandments was central to the Old Testament so lo and behold the model prayer is central to the new covenant, the new covenant scriptures. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to just take us on a bit of a, um, a, a walk down memory lane, as it were, a theological walk, if you will. We remember in Genesis and are impressed with the account of creation. In particular, the conclusion at the, towards the end of chapter 1, remember the, the page 1 of your Bibles, if you will. God saw that it was all good, very good. And then God proceeds to, to rest following his creation on the seventh day. And of course the climax of that creative work was the creation of, of, of humanity. But we know, as we continue to read into, particularly we get to about page three in the Bible, that, that things went terribly wrong. Human rebellion, as it were. And so we've got this, this separation of heaven and earth, as it, as it were. That's the theology that's being reflected in this prayer. It's acknowledging that something went wrong and now God is acting to make it right again. Let me illustrate it this way. Oh, let me, say, let me hasten to add, I think a, a, a mistake that's grown up in the church over the ages, the idea that um, the, uh, uh, the, the separation of heaven and earth has led to a situation where, where we seek to uh, dismiss earth, leave earth, to take a place in heaven as if the realms are two totally separate, unrelated realms and that, and that planet Earth is, is quite dispensable now. 
I want to suggest to you that that's a mistaken understanding of what the Bible teaches about eschatology. Rather, the story is one of redemption, the bringing back together, the return to the way it was where God walked in the very presence of humanity on planet Earth. The imagery, of course, I'm referring to is described by the Apostle John. Uh, The new heavens and the new earth, where lo and behold, new Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem, comes down to earth. And that becomes the throne upon which God reigns among his people. This is being reflected in this prayer. It affirms the holiness, the separateness, the otherness of God. It affirms God's redemption of a fallen and therefore through sin a dysfunctional world. God's redeeming it through Christ. And it affirms our part in redemption through our discipleship to King Jesus. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our commitment, that's our covenant as the people of God. We promise to play our part expressed in our submission to your will, God. And every time a disciple prays this prayer, we are affirming those things. We are repeating that acknowledgement, that, that commitment on our part. Give us this day our daily bread. Yeah. Might be controversial, I don't know, but it seems to me a prayer for daily bread presupposes the prayer will be said daily. He doesn't say, give us this day our daily bread and tomorrow's bread and, and, and maybe the next week or two, the next time I pray. Give us this day, this day, in the here and now, as I, as I stand or as I, as I kneel, whatever, and pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Just as, I want to hasten to add, in, in passing, when you give to the needy, presupposes the practice of alms giving, presupposes that his people, his disciples, his, the citizens of the kingdom, if you will, will be generous people. And just as when you fast, this is the nature of the language, not if you fast, when you fast, presupposes the practice of fasting. And I want to, though fasting is more commonly expressed in terms of abstaining from food, for example, and that's, and that's fine and that's doable, but I want to, I want to especially in our, in our consumer-saturated society today, I want to just put it simply in terms of self-discipline. Self-discipline. To sacrifice something. It might be food, it might be something else but to sacrifice something for the sake of learning to discipline ourselves in order to better render ourselves in in service to God. Manna, the obvious reference in the background here from Exodus chapter 16, was of course symbolic of God's provision and our trust in him. Matthew 4 there, the reference to the temptation of Christ, which remember, any reader of Matthew, by the time you get to chapter 5, chapter 6, you've already read chapter 4, you're familiar with the whole context of the temptation of Christ. And you've got that in the back of your mind as you move forward now to engage with something like the model prayer. And of course the communal aspect of this, sharing of bread daily became characteristic of the life of the early church. I probably don't need to comment on that any further. Breaking bread from house to house daily 
It became part of the new community, it became characteristic of the new community. And my point is to emphasise community. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debts. Daily confession of sins, a sense of confession, sin consciousness or humility. I think a good way to understand Jesus' point I would suggest here is, is to remember the parable of the tax collector and the, and the Pharisee. A Pharisee and a tax collector go up to the temple to pray. Uh, and the Pharisee proceeds to tell God how, how lucky God is to have him on his side. You know, how all this stuff, I pray, I fast three times a week, I pray, you know, all this sort of stuff. But then Jesus puts the spotlight on the tax collector. He wouldn't even so much as lift up his face to God, but beat his breast saying, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I don't think Jesus is talking about the need to rattle off a list every day uh, uh, specific sins that I've committed and sort of be sure that you cover everyone and, and, and won't be tied to you if you miss one because it's not forgiven because you didn't confess. I don't think he's talking in a literal sense like that. He's talking about, remember, motivation. A humble and contrite heart. That's what God values. And a humble and contrite heart is going to be conscious of I am a sinner. And but for the grace of God, but for the grace of God, I would be in big trouble. Thank God for his son. But I am a sinner. As we also have forgiven, presupposes that we are a forgiving people. Jesus, Jesus is pretty presumptuous in this, in this prayer, isn't he? All of these things that he presupposes. He presupposes that those that would pray this prayer are a people who are not just forgiven themselves but understanding that forgiveness. We have the responsibility to be a forgiving people ourselves. We are forgiven so God calls upon us to forgive others. And here's a really scary bit. Not part of the prayer, strictly speaking, but a commentary following his model Um, Jesus goes on to say, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Scary, because that makes God's forgiveness conditional. The condition is that we are required to be forgiving one another. If we're not prepared to do that, then why would we expect God to forgive us? Sin, it's interesting the language that's used here, trespass and debt. Trespass, sort of the idea of transgression, going beyond. Debt, something, something that's owed but left unpaid. And maybe when we recognise that the, the, the primary term, hamatia, that's used in the New Testament to, to describe uh, sin, missing the mark fundamentally, Either by, if you imagine the target there, and an archer shooting an arrow at the target, you either go beyond, you miss the target by going beyond it, there's your transgression, or you miss the target by falling short of it. James described sin in terms of knowing what to do, knowing what is right to do, but choosing not to do it, falling short of doing right. When you conceive of it as love, when you conceive of the target, the goal as being love, 
we miss it every time we act without love or, or with unlove, if you will. And we owe one another. What did Jesus say? Love God, love your neighbour. We owe love to one another, to everybody, but especially to the community, the household of faith, surely. We owe that. And so when we don't love one another, we're withholding. There's your debt. We're robbing one another. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. James, you remember, said, Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one, when tempted, should say, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Matthew's reader, again, remember, will, will, will recall Jesus as being driven by the Spirit. So there's, there's no doubt the, the will of God that Jesus be tempted. It was the Spirit of God that drove Jesus into the wilderness following his baptism to be tested expressly, we understand, tested. God tests. The devil tempts. How we respond to God's testing really determines in large part whether it becomes a temptation that leads to our, our, our death, as it were. First Corinthians, a reminder again from the Apostle Paul, no testing or temptation, the, the term can be validly interpreted or translated as either test or temptation. No testing or temptation has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful. He will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. Lead us not to temptation. Deliver us from evil. By all means, we accept the testing but help us to pass the test, if you will. So in conclusion, the model prayer shapes us by reminding us God is holy. And love and forgiveness allow us to live with ourselves and our failures. Just as God surrounds us with love, so the community surrounds us. Oh, I'm back really. Just to be gracious to one another and to forgive one another. We will be okay. We will be okay. God allows us to be tested, to sanctify us. We ask for deliverance from evil, not from the trial of sojourning through the world. Just as Jesus' temptation was necessary, so our temptation in the wilderness, our testing in the wilderness, is an essential part of our discipleship but it's okay because God is on our side so we conclude and predictably I'm going to ask us all in fact we might even stand to read the prayer together Jesus said pray then like this 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Thank you.